geht's gut, ich bin froh und ich sag dir auch wieso, weil du mich gut verstehst. Hello and welcome to the Panzer Podcast. My name is John Burgess and I will be your host as we deep dive into all things tanks. For today's episode, we will be discussing one of the two more prolific models of the Panther, the Osferung A, which was still known, according to the K-Stand, as SDKFZ, Sonderkraftfahrzeuge, 171 or 171, or simply the Panther. Remember, the Osferung identifier was only for the factories, engineers, and fine folk like you and I to argue about years later. I know I've been teasing this model and the other variations of the Panther, but I can safely say that today we will cover this Osferung in great detail to better round out our understanding of the evolution of the Panther tank from the drawing board to the desperate streets of Berlin in 1945. I've got some thoughts on how I'd like to handle this episode, and probably the last few of them are going to be kind of Similar is not the right word, because obviously the material will be different, but the format, I think I'm starting to really get it going. Anyway, many of you enjoyed some of the, I guess, after-action reporting that I read when we discussed Operation Citadel, which was the first deployment of the Panther Ops D in July of 1943. Obviously, we won't have any more first-time battles to discuss, as that milestone has come and gone for the Panther. What I would like to do today is sprinkle in some after-action reports to exemplify or vilify the modifications made during the design and the production process of the latest ALFS A model. Furthermore, I am hoping that by the end of this episode, my wonderful listeners will be able to look at a photograph of different Panther tanks and be able to better identify the Osferung that you happen to be looking at. Consider this a party trick that you won't ever be able to use unless you happen to be... Uh, honestly, I'm having trouble coming up with a good scenario. But if you'd like to impress a curator at a museum, maybe this episode will help. Without further ado, let's dive in. As early as August of 1943, Maschinenfabrik Augsburg-Nürnberg, or MAN, took up a defensive position in response to, quote, accusations of inadequate panther manufacturing, end quote. And they fired right back to the critics that, at least according to Mann, and, well, everything episode one covered on this podcast, quote, the Reich Ministerium for Rüstung und Kriegsproduktion had explicitly dispensed with prior testing and the usual pre-production series, errors of judgment, which brought about all the initial problems in the series production. End quote. While there is no denying the urgency in which the Panther saw itself born out of, it was not wholly the fault of Waproof 6, or the Reichsministerium, or even Hitler, for that matter. No, hubris, ego, and all of the above are responsible for the shortcomings of the Panther D. I think that might be the overall lesson of the story of the Panther, a comedy of errors, not the fault of any one order, but rather, the entire operation was doomed from the start by the very nature of what was asked of man to produce in such a limited time span. While man may have a good enough excuse as to why their panther was kind of shitty, they were the engineering firm of note, 
and as such, were now solely responsible for improving and making right the many wrongs of the Panther. Remember, this is August of 1943. Operation Citadel has just finished, sort of, and the great pullout is happening. And Panther number 851 was just rolling out of the factory as a fresh Panther Osferung A, the newest iteration of the Panzerkampfwagen 5. Though, before we get to Panther number 851, we need to understand just why a new model was needed in the first place. We know the initial flaws of the Osferung D, but things like the final drive and engine, these weren't going to be changed. We know that because I keep saying it, because I keep reading it, because that's what ultimately happened. So, rolling the tape back just a bit to a meeting of Wildproof 6 and Ryan Mattel in February of 1943. Several improvements were discussed, but would not be implemented on the current production model, the Osferung D. These improvements would instead be incorporated, starting with the newly authorized Osferung A in September of 1943. These improvements included things such as a new turret traversing mechanism called the Boehringer Sturm L4 hydraulic motor. This new traversing mechanism was based on a varying motor speed instead of a fixed speed of 6 degrees per second. This meant the turret could now turn in a variety of speeds based on the gear the tank was in as well as the RPMs of the engine. This was the same motor and system that the Tiger tank was equipped with. With the new Panther Os A, the time required to traverse the turret 360 degrees was split up into, well, you have high gears and low gears as far as the speed ratio is concerned, and then it was limited by the engine RPMs. So, for example, what was listed in the Panther Feeble, the engine RPMs at 1,000, in a speed ratio of high, had a traverse time of 46 seconds. Next, the engine RPMs at 2000, speed ratio of high, and a time of 23 seconds. RPMs of 2500, with a speed ratio of high, would result in a traverse speed of 18 seconds. Finally, the fastest at 3000 RPMs and a speed ratio of high could turn the turret in 15 seconds. Now, the last two were the low speed ratios, with an engine RPM of 1,000, speed ratio low. The time to traverse was 93 seconds, rather slow. The next one, the engine RPM set at 2,000, speed ratio low, could traverse the turret in 45 seconds. This was all a vast improvement over the Panther D's full traverse of 60 seconds. Mind you, this was for the hydraulic or sort of the automatic traverse system. Both tanks, the Panther A and the Panther D, would still retain the hand crank for very fine tuning of the traverse mechanism. After installing this new hydraulic traverse system, Ryan Mattal had to simplify the elevating mechanism, which included moving the location of the hand wheel for the elevation gears since the improved traversing motor was implemented and got in the way. The design was basically just simplified, removing two universal joints and allowing the same mechanical movement with less parts. Further, an auxiliary traverse mechanism, which was another device that needed to be redesigned, 
due to the new traversing motor. The proposed design prior to this redesign also got in the way of the ammo stowage in the panniers, which are the top sides of the Panther which hang over the tracks. The commander's cupola, and I like saying it cupola versus cupola. I've heard it both ways, and because language is made up and English basically has no rules, um, I'll allow both. The new specifications for the Haupttauschus, the main committee for tanks, led by Dr. Ferdinand Porsche, which enabled a new cupola to be cast instead of forge made. Remember, the Germans only cast a few portions of their tanks, with cupolas and mantlets being the two primary casted parts. Armor protection was increased to at least 100 millimeters. Remember, casting varies piece by piece, and especially due to the new curved and rounded nature of the cupola, allowed for thickness that would vary a bit more. Essentially, the new cupola at bare minimum was 100 millimeters thick. It did, however, grow in certain places as it curved. In addition to the new armor requested, troops on the front line were demanding that the periscopes in the cupola be easily replaceable with only a few hand grips and without the need for tools. These periscopes should also be able to be changed while wearing thick gloves during the oppressive Russian winters. Which, by all accounts, this kind of modification makes complete sense and is most certainly born out of actual combat experience, the periscopes could, and would, get damaged or destroyed during combat, requiring on-the-fly replacement to not keep the commander blind. Finally, the last modification to the commander's cupola was an azimuth indicator ring graduated from 1 to 12 o'clock. This azimuth indicator traversed with the turret that allowed the commander to better orient his gunner using a simple clock call-out method. As an example, target, 2 o'clock, range, 500, that kind of thing. The three Ds of targeting, description, direction, distance. Though the Germans used a particular method for targeting, the relative core principles of the three Ds remained the same. I have an example out of the Panther Feeble for how to call out targets between the commander and the gunner, which I will read now. Report, contact. Report, direction of contact. Report, range of contact. Select, ammo. Load. Stop driving. Turret position, using the clock direction. Rotate the turret toward target. Distance contact, measuring. Adjust range. Target, contact. Aim. Lead. Release. Wait for the right moment. Fire. Now. Depending on the encounter, this order of operations, as it were, could vary slightly, but essentially, this is how targeting and shooting went for the Panther. Now, I know that kind of sounds funny. Report, contact, report, direction of contact. The, the whole idea is that this order of operations would be so well memorized that during the intense moments of combat, you essentially would be yelling these in order and you would know to move to the next step because you were told the previous step. Moving on to the loader side of the turret, the loader was now equipped with a periscope which was mounted on the turret roof. This allows another set of eyes to look onto the battlefield, and it also gives the poor loader some sense of relief from all the claustrophobia. Though, honestly, if you're a tanker, 
God help you if you can't do tight spaces. One of the chief complaints during Operation Citadel was a lack of vision. So this measure was just in uh, just another way to help improve that deficiency. Further, the gun mantlet on the Panther tank was widened to increase the protection against the flat face of the front of the turret. This is a slightly noticeable change from the Aus D Panther. If you were looking at them both head-on, you would notice that the Aus A's mantlet is wider than the Aus D. A key identifier for an Aus A versus Aus D, the turret, at least the side of the turret, where the mantlet meets the front face of the turret. On the D, the interlocking front plate was dovetailed to fit together. Think of a puzzle piece, but it flanged out, so that once you slid them together, you could not pull them apart. However, when you look at the Alf's A turret, this dovetail joint is now a simple square joint that is fitted together, then welded in place. It still fits kind of like a puzzle piece, but the joints are less intricate and therefore much easier and cheaper to produce. An improved, oh boy, Rohr Ausblase Vorrichtung, or Bohr Evacuator. If you'll recall back to episode 3 and 4, the Bohr Evacuator, especially during Operation Citadel, was identified as an area that needed improvement. Gases from firing the cannon would fill up the turret, causing the Panzer Truppen within to become essentially incapacitated, or in the very least, this could cause their tempo to dissipate and falter. Being unable to see properly, therefore they would slow down their firing. This bore evacuator was to remedy that problem. Next to the gunner, a simplified azimuth was installed, and this was done to help coordinate the commander and the gunner together. If the commander called out 3 o'clock, the gunner could quickly see where he was pointed or facing and could adjust accordingly. Time on target is always important, and any effort made in improving this ability was always appreciated by the troops. This azimuth was a simple, cheap, and quite effective fix. These modifications were set to replace the Aus D model as the new Aus A model, the first of which would actually leave the factory floor in August of 1943. Though only a few of the early model Aus A Panthers would have all of the modifications that a late model A Panther would ultimately have mostly because not all of the materials were readily available to make all of the changes, at least right away, and not to mention the Germans were good at using up old stock. It would take for the Aus-A production line to come fully online a little bit of time. This, as we know, is a characteristic of German vehicle production, and I know it may sound like I'm picking on the Germans in this regard, so let me just say this. Most nations did this. Though they might not have been quite as finicky as the Germans, the Allies would also tweak their production vehicles here and there to better suit their needs and to improve production capacity. However, the way the Americans and the British and the Soviets produced tanks were on a different kind of scale. I don't want to say always larger, even though it was. It was just different. So before we run down all of the modifications made to the Panther A during production, I would like to point out, if it hasn't become abundantly clear yet, all of the modifications for the Aus A program 
was an effort to basically put a newly designed turret onto the Panther D chassis. There was some modification of the hull in regards to the hull machine gun, which we'll get to during the production modifications segment. But realistically, the Panther A was a new Panther turret sitting atop the same old Panther D chassis. I'm not entirely sure what amount of modifications or new designations are required for a completely new drawing number or Osferung, be it 51% of turret components or a simple eye test of just enough differences. But there you have it. The Osferung A blueprints have been drawn up and production would now be underway. Production of the new Osferung A Panther began in August of 1943 with a whopping three vehicles produced by MNH. Realistically, production did not begin in earnest until September once the other firms got their production lines switched over. The early production Model A Panther tanks were manufactured from August through early December of 1943, which included all of the above modifications. However, some of the earlier Model A Panthers of about 700 would not have all of the production modifications. They would have to either be added later or were simply never implemented. The line of certainty truly becomes an estuary of maybes, speculation, and what some historians have referenced to as the early Model A Panther. I've even seen the Panther A sometimes mentioned as the Panther Alphs A slash D to denote a very early Alphs A or what you might call a transitional panther. Starting as early as November of 1943 and onward, these additional modifications were implemented with the production of A vehicles. Firstly, we have the Termziel Fernar, or the TZF-12A gun sight, versus the original TZF-12 gun sight. This is one of those on the sheet of paper in front of me, doesn't look like a big difference, but in reality is. The TZF-12 binocular gun sight was installed on the Panther Aus D. If you'll recall from episode 2, when we discussed the different parts and subsystems of the Panther, this sight was by all accounts a good sight, and a common attribute of German gun sights is that they were superb, which is not a bullshit statement, their optics were top shelf indeed. However, the TZF-12 was only a 2.5 magnification binocular sight with 28 degrees field of view. Now the TZF, the 12A model, which we're talking about now, based upon the findings of Operation Citadel and other combat experiences, gave the gunner two options for magnification. He had the standard 2.5 at 28 degrees field of view, then he could zoom to 5x at 14 degrees field of view. This allowed the gunners to get a better sight picture of the target they were engaging at longer distances. Since the KWK-42 cannon could really reach out and touch someone at vast distances, this was a welcomed improvement to the Panther. Just a note, this sight was not available in the early production Alps A Panthers. Those built from August through December of 1943 would still retain the original TZF-12 binocular sight and the letterbox hole machine gun. From about mid-December 1943 onward, the TZF-12A 
and the Kugel Blenda Hull MG port were fitted to the Panther Alps A. Uh, side note, until the new gun mantlets were made available, which did not include the second hole drilled for the binocular sight, an armored plug was inserted into the secondary hole for the binocular sight of the early Alps D style mantlet. Since the TZF-12A was monocular, it required only one hole. Now to the Kugelblende hole machine gun port. Kugelblende, which literally means either spherical shutter or ball aperture, was the new hole machine gun port that would replace the letterbox style hatch for the hole MG. We noted beforehand that the letterbox hatch, much like the driver's vision hatch, in front of the hull could become stuck either opened or worse maybe closed due to debris and other fouling that might occur during combat. The less moving parts the better. The ball mount was also much simpler to manufacture and install. The radio operator's periscope was also deleted once this implementation became available. It was noted that the radio operator would instead use the Kugelzilf Fernrohr 2 or KZF2 hull machine gun sight. It had a 1.8x magnification and an 18 degree field of view that was deemed adequate to replace the stationary periscope that the radio operator used. Application of Zimmerit anti magnetic coating was applied beginning in September of 1943 and would continue throughout the entirety of the Panther A production cycle as it was not until September of 1944 when it was decided to get rid of this modification across the entire Panzerwaffe. Again, this anti-magnetic paste, which was rippled or rather textured, there are photographs of cross-hatching waffle maker patterns, and even diagonal striping, which was a technique used to increase the distance from the outermost layer of Zimmerit to the steel base without increasing the overall weight. I would say brilliant, but this paste was a somewhat useless addition as there really weren't that many magnetic mines or any that the Panzerwaffe had to worry about. And it did take a bit of time to apply by hand before moving the tank to the front. The Maybach HL230P30 motor had been experiencing several failures during serial production, the worst of which being a proclivity to blow head gaskets. According to Thomas Jens' Panther book, Dr. Ferdinand Porsche had prescribed installing copper rings pressed into grooves to seal the heads of the motor. This process, which began in September of 1943, simultaneously, the engineers had also come up with an improved coolant circulation system to help mitigate the overheating, along with a new and reinforced membrane for the fuel pump, which, if we'll recall, was a major weak spot in the chain of events which oftentimes led to, quote, catastrophic engine failures, end quote. This upgrade process also coincided with a refit and replacement scheme that was ordered on September 23rd of 1943, stating, quote, first priority was to be given to the Panthers issued to the newly created units or Panthers delivered as replacements to the front. All replacement motors of the old type located at the front were to be rapidly exchanged for motors of the latest type. New motors were to be supplied to the assembly firms, 
production was not to be delayed due to a shortage of new motors. If necessary, older motors were to be installed and then exchanged for a new motor before the Panther was sent to the front. End quote. Clearly, as with all things within the Reich during the latter part of the war, the production of new motors and modified motors was obviously seen as a priority. However, due to the constant constraints felt by the German war economy, these priorities would have to be shuffled around in the best way possible to give the soldiers at the front the latest vehicle they desperately needed. I would note here that, for the most part, and this goes for all armies, that new units or replacement units would always have been issued the latest equipment when available. The Panzerwaffe, however, did not always have the luxury of cycling their veteran troops off the front line, at least not long enough for these retrofits and upgrades to take place before being sent back into the fray. This system also proved quite problematic in a way that we can fully understand, having dissected the repair and the supply network in previous episodes. We've laid the groundwork, as it were. And as such, we know that the idea of replacing the motors of frontline Panthers at the front was going to be anything but simple. Just because there are new items in the inventory does not mean that they will be available to the frontline troops immediately. These improved motors would have to be loaded onto rail cars, sent east, unloaded, transported by truck or light rail to a Kvark, then the selected Panther units would have to be pulled off the front line, sent back to the Kvark, either by rail or, God forbid, their own power, and once there, would have to sit around and wait while the replacement and retrofit took place. Simple, right? Sure. Again, unforeseen consequences and all of that. Further modifications to the HL230P30 motor included a governor installed by the factory to limit the maximum RPMs to 2500 under a full load, such as moving around. This also included improved ball bearings within the motor, including an 8 crankshaft bearing installed beginning in January of 1944. Later still, in March of 1944, the new Maybach engines had a new piston installed, decreasing the compression ratio from 1 to 68 to 1 to 64. Compression ratio means, in simple terms, or as simple as I can make it make sense to me, that the fuel mix needs to be compressed to 1 64th of its original volume before combusting. From what I've read, a higher compression ratio is more fuel efficient. However, the risk of engine knock or pistons firing at the inappropriate time, throwing the engine off, could often occur with a higher ratio. Using a slightly lower ratio of 164 instead of 168 would be technically less fuel efficient. However, the engine itself would be more reliable and thus more stable. Finally, in March of 1944, the Maybach engines had the Schwungkraftanlasers inertia hand crank starter replaced by the Durchstrahanlasser reduction gear hand crank starter, which by all accounts was easier to use and thus easier for the troops to start the Panther tank. Further improvements during production included, in chronological order, the turret platform reinforcement which began in November of 1943 and would continue throughout the production life. 
This upgrade was fabricated from bent and welded tubes for overall strengthening of the turret platform, which was the internal section of the turret which nestled into the hull of the Panther in which the turret crew stood on. They added a centered toe coupling, which was bolted to the rear hull, a short-lived modification stolen from the Burger Panther, lasting all of two months, November and December of 1943, the tow coupling was welded below the engine access hatch, reducing the overall ground clearance and was abandoned fairly quickly because of that. Several of the Alps A Panthers assembled through April of 44 would have had the brackets secured and the holes drilled for mounting the tow coupling, but were instead assembled without the coupling and the holes would be sealed with four bolts. Kind of a waste, in my opinion, uh, but you know, they were just, it was an idea that they tried and it really just didn't work. Next, we have the crew compartment heater and engine exhaust manifold cooling pipes, which were installed from January through to the end of the Alps A production. The Kampfraum Heizung, or crew compartment heater, was installed to combat the extreme cold weather faced by the Panzertruppen on the Eastern Front and the western front too, but the cold there was never quite as unforgiving as that of the Soviet Union, except for that one particular winter in 1944 and 45. We'll talk about it later. The hot air came from the engine compartment. Now, I know this sounds like a good way to poison and kill yourself with carbon monoxide, and you're not entirely wrong. But this wasn't as simple as just running the exhaust straight into the crew compartment, like early automobiles did, mind you. No, this system was much more sophisticated and prone to failure. A fan installed in the left radiator assembly that turned the opposite direction to the fan on the right side. This pulled air from the outside, forcing it through the radiator, heating it up. Once there, it would then be pushed into ductwork connected to an outlet in the firewall. Flaps installed at the outlet inside of the crew compartment were then used to control the heater. The reverse fan, which was a large box that sat atop the engine deck on the left-hand side, could be installed and removed as needed. When this reverse fan was installed, the flow path for the Auspuffkulung, engine exhaust cooling, was also reversed meaning the manifold on the left side of the engine was no longer being cooled. Was this a problem? Hell yeah. What was the solution? Well, beginning in January of 1944, to better cool the left-hand manifold, and therefore the entire engine itself, two pipes were mounted parallel to the left exhaust pipe on the rear of the Panther. Now, we are going to get into the weeds, so please bear with me, but in order to better understand how all of this works in keeping the engine cool, while simultaneously keeping the troops warm, while further not poisoning them, we need to kind of dive into this. So these two new pipes were mounted parallel on the left-hand side, were then connected internally to the sheet metal cover surrounding the left exhaust header. This connection re-established a path for cooling air to flow past the left exhaust header and discharge out of the new pipes mounted on the side of the main left exhaust pipe. Okay, now 
these extra pipes also assisted during the warmer months by allowing the fan mounted in reverse to be replaced with the original fan, which spun in the other direction, which would then increase the amount of cold air flowing through the manifold by removing the protective cover of the crew heating apparatus. If you're curious what I'm talking about, I will post on my Instagram page pictures of the rear of the Panther A, which will show the exhaust pipes on the rear, which on the left-hand side, it almost looks like there's three pipes and there's only one pipe on the right-hand side. Well, those three pipes on the left are what we just described that help assist the crew compartment heater. There was a vertical mount for the 20-ton jack added in February of 1944. The 20-ton jack was to replace the earlier model, 15-ton jack, which had been previously mounted horizontally. The vertical jack was placed between the exhaust pipes on the rear of the Panther. Watertight seals behind the gun mantlet were installed beginning in March of 1944. Unfortunately for the armaments industry, but Germany had a serious lack of rubber. As such, many Panthers were built without these watertight seals. Once the troops started refusing Panthers without seals, the Waffenop inspectors insisted this be remedied immediately. In the meantime, sailcloth seals were used in their stead until rubber seals were made available. In addition to the modifications made to the new turret of the Aus A Panther, the original MP Stopfen, or pistol ports, with plugs, were deleted from the turret altogether. This included both the sides and the rear turret MP Stopfen, which had been a weak point, albeit a small one, and made obsolete by the introduction of the Nachverteid Gungswaffe, or close defense weapon. The new CDW was installed upon the roof with a variety of ammunition types which could be fired from within the Panther. There were four types of ammunition, the Schnell Nebelkürzen 39, or smoke candles, which created a sort of smoke screen around the Panther. Next, we have the Wurfgranaten, which translates to thrown grenades, or simply grenades. These were anti-personnel weapons, which showered the Panther and nearby area with shrapnel and a concussive blast. We have the Rauchsichtseichen Orange. 350 or orange smoke signal and finally we have the Luftgeschossen R literally luminous shot but for our purposes it translates to signal flare the close defense weapon itself could traverse a full 360 degrees however it was fixed in elevation at a 50 degree angle i should like to note here that due to shortages of the CDW many panther a's would leave the factory instead with a circular plate bolted down covering the opening for the close defense weapon, which did reside on the rear of the turret on the right-hand side just in front of the Fugue 5 radio antenna mount. There was a towing coupling welded to the motor access hatch starting April of 1944. This was done to remove the tow hitch which had reduced the ground clearance and allow for easier towing of the Panther a modification which would last throughout the war. In June of 1944, the Behelskrein 2-ton or 2-ton jib boom, which was issued to the Panzer Truppen to help with field repairs, like lifting the front hole plate or the rear deck plate, was attached using these new sockets which were also installed on the turret roof. 
Finally, there were a couple of extra modifications that were simple and not exactly Panther A only modifications, but rather Panther tanks would be issued this new equipment or replaced as older models came back for repairs. The interlocked hull roof armor plates. As early as May of 1943, the hull roof plates, of which the Panther had two, the front and the rear deck plates, the former contained the driver and radio operator hatches, the latter covering the engine deck. These were initially cut in a dovetail method, much like the earlier turret connectors were, especially where the gun matlet meets the turret, an indicator of an offs A turret, and just like the turret, this dovetail or flange was done away with for a simpler straight cut for ease of manufacture and assembly. However, as with all things involving physical armor, this upgrade would take some time to make it onto the newly finished Panthers. The earliest identified Alps A with this modification would not be seen until December of 1943 at the earliest. Next, we have the Mittelstollen or ice sprags, or snow cleats. Uh, this was another of the winter gear upgrades, which were meted out by the Instansetzung during winter refit. These sprags, which increased traction on roads covered in ice or packed snow, were attached at intervals of one every fifth or one every seventh track length. When attached, the panther speed was not to exceed 15 kilometers an hour, or 9 miles an hour, for fear of damaging the already fragile suspension system. These cleats did help the Panthers move around when the ground was frozen and traction was bought at a premium. It was a great help in reducing general stress and breakdowns of the tracks. That said, once these cleats were issued, and that was a big if they were issued, they would over time break off, become lost, damaged, etc. And eventually they would need replacing. So essentially the Mittelstollen would have a depreciating value as once they were issued and almost like a, like a timer was set and eventually the Panther would lose the bonus that such equipment provided. The troops themselves would continue their practice of unauthorized modifications as seen on the Panther D, such as hanging track links on the turret signs, hanging spare road wheels on the turret or hull sides, welding handles onto the outside of access hatches, mounting several sheet metal boxes onto the rear deck for storage, moving the cleaning rod container to the rear instead of on the sides of the hull, welding debris guards over the gun mantlet, lengthening of rain guards over optical equipment, and my favorite, installing a remote-controlled wiper blade for the gun sight. I wish I had a diagram of this. With all the above improvements, additions, deletions, and otherwise modifications to the Panther, it is of no wonder why they had to redraw this vehicle as the Panther Osferum A. With the first three Panther Os A rolling off of the MNH assembly plants in August of 1943, production would only ramp up from there, reaching a peak production of 278 Panther Os A in January of 1944, declining monthly after that, though a total of 2,200 Panther Alps A were produced from August of 1943 
to July of 1944. The three big manufacturing firms, Mann, Daimler-Benz, and MNH, once again undertook the contracts of producing the new Panther for the Reich. DMAG was also involved in the Aus A production, insofar that they were tasked with refurbishing Panther Rex and upgrading them to Alf's A standards. MNH was the heavy producer, constructing 830 Panther A's, Daimler-Benz a distant second at 675, Mann, the original designer of the Panther, producing only 645, and finally DMAG rebuilt about... 50 Panther A's from damaged Panther D's, and maybe Frankensteining together a couple Aus A's with whatever they could muster. Production would last nearly a full year, though the most lucrative months of production were between August of 43 and April of 44, with nearly 250 Panther Aus A produced each month during that period. What does this mean for the troops on the front? Obviously, war doesn't slow down or pause for new equipment to get brought up, nor does old equipment become automatically upgraded a la Civilization games or Hearts of Iron. In reality, these new Panthers would infiltrate the Panzerwaffe at a somewhat steady rate when available. Several new Panther Abteilungen would be created, attached to parent units, and whisked off to the front to engage the enemy. Many more would be sent as Panzerersatzabteilung, or Tank Replacement Battalion, to reinforce and improve the combat readiness of units which had been severely depleted following the summer offensive of 1943, which would include Operation Citadel, Episode 4, for those who are curious, if you haven't already listened. Speaking of that summer offensive, how was the Panzerwaffe currently faring on the Eastern Front? Well, not well. Following the failures of the summer offensive, most notably the ill-fated Operation Citadel, though it was not the only attack made during the summer campaign, uh, all along the Eastern Front, the German push had been halted, and in many places, repulsed fanatically with losses of both territory, manpower, and materiel. Just to remind my listeners, these were both tangibles that Germany did not have a limitless reserve of, and squandering any of these resources would have exponentially dire consequences for the Reich. And Germany's war effort as a whole, I mean, these gains which had been won in 1943, and even some of the 1942 gains, were being threatened by the Soviet counteroffensive, which seemed to grow in both ferocity and their scale. Army Group Center and Army Group South, especially receiving the lion's share of these attacks, were in constant need of men, materiel, and a great helping of luck if they were going to stand even a remote chance of being able to hold their positions. At this point, just holding the territory they stood on was becoming an insurmountable obstacle, let alone any notion of ever going on the offensive again. To combat these increasingly aggressive Soviet counteroffensives, the German war machine was in desperate need of reinforcement. According to Thomas Jenst, in his wonderfully written and sourced Panzertruppen Volume 2, quote, In their desperation to stop the Russians' advance, most of these new replacement units were sent in piecemeal as they were unloaded from the trains. 
Invariably, their operational strength plummeted after a few days in combat, resulting in weakened units that were capable only of localized defensive counterstrikes instead of concentrated powerful counteroffensives. End quote. Which, thank you, Mr. Jenst, is a better way of saying the Germans were throwing their green units into the meat grinder. Not exactly the best use of these very finite reinforcements, but the massive gaps and collapsing fronts did not have the luxury of bringing fresh units up to speed, gradually acclimating them to the fierce climate of combat on the Eastern Front. Looking at some charts in front of me, the story is told in another way, through operational numbers. 1943 was a tough year for anyone, but the Panzerwaffe especially saw some of the worst hardships to date. At its peak in late June of 1943, just prior to Operation Citadel, there were 2,584 available Panzers of all types, shapes, and sizes, and of those, 2,287 were operational or ready for action. After Operation Citadel concluded, or at least the offensive began to wane in early September of 1943, that number had plummeted significantly. 1,922 Panzers were available, while a pitiful 775 were actually operational. Though, by the end of 1943, this number would increase to 2,054 available Panzers, however only 1,043 were operational not even half of what the pre-offensive numbers were. Quite alarming if you're in the leadership cabal of the German army, the Panzerwaffe was literally shriveling by the day, and with the invasion of Italy in 1943, more vehicles and men were pulled off of the Eastern Front, all the while an impending Western Front, which was always a known quantity, it was just a matter of speculation, as to when and where it would take place. But Hitler knew, or at least thought he knew, that the Allies were most definitely preparing an invasion, which would require more manpower, more vehicles, all of which the Reich were running critically low. All these much-needed manpower vehicles on the east were now being pulled away and sent to the Western Front, further weakening the already exhausted units on the Eastern Front. Okay. Now, I wanted to pick up our story on the Eastern Front, almost where we left it off, this time focusing on some different Panzer units, particularly those with Panthers, since, well, we're studying the Panther. Any whoozlebee, 2nd Abteilung of Panzer Regiment 23 of the famed 23rd Panzer Division would, by December of 1943, be down to their last six or so of their original allotment that included 96 Panther tanks beginning in August of 1943. They were in dire need of replacement vehicles. Luckily for them, the Panther Ops A was finally arriving. From December 22nd through January 4th, a total of 74 Panther Ops A's would be sent to reinforce Panzer Regiment 23 as well as additional rebuilt and refurbished Panther Ds. The problem here is that we don't have the records indicating which chassis numbers were sent to the unit at this time, so we can only guess as to how many Alf D Panthers were now in the mix with the Panzer Regiment. Suffice it to say, this unit was now made up 
primarily of Panther A's and late model Panther D's. With this in mind, we can gleam some insight as to how well the new Panther A was operating. Now, it may seem like I'm beating up on the Panther tank like it owes me money or something, but the reality is these accounts of the account of the Panther are coming directly from the men and their leadership who saw and put these vehicles into action. They were the ones actually abusing the Panther tank, and I do believe that these machines were pushed to their limits out of necessity. The war was quickly turning downright awful for the Germans, and there was little time for these vehicles to be properly and safely brought up to the front line without daring actions and the consumption of valuable resources. What other choice did the commanders have? Oberstleutnant Mildebrath wrote this in his report, quote, Until the same automotive reliability as the Panzer III and Panzer IV is achieved, the Abteilung must be provided with extra repair parts, especially motors and final drives, and the necessary equipment and personnel to perform maintenance and repairs, end quote. We've heard this all before, folks, all the way back in 1943, but this is now a report from damn near a year later with the same issues. Mildebrath continues, quote, Since the Abteilung consists of very good older Panzertruppen, and sufficient time was available for individual training, all problems can be traced to the design and production mistakes. However, during the allotted time planned for training, 592 modifications were made to their Panthers, with almost no time left for unit tactical training in the Abteilung. End quote. This last bit of information seemingly contradicts itself with a small distinction. In case you missed it, the individual training was good, the crewmen knew their jobs and conducted themselves well. By this point, the Panzertruppen within the Abteilung were in fact adequately acquainted with the Panther. And do remember, the Panther A was essentially still just a Panther D with a new turret, so the mechanics of the vehicle have not changed in regards to driving the tank, keeping the tank running, that kind of thing. So these drivers were, for the most part, they were veteran Panther drivers who had either learned on the job or were adequately trained by their comrades on the do's and the don'ts while handling the Panther. What the Oberstleutnant is expressing to us is that, just like prior to Kursk, the Abteilung was woefully trained in large-scale Abteilungen, or battalion-level maneuvers, which very seriously hindered its combat capabilities as a unit the same problem which had faced Panzer Abteilung 51 and 52 prior to the launch of Operation Citadel. The Abteilung, and Panzer Regiment 23 specifically, were diverted here and there with various tasks throughout this stage of the conflict, partisan attacks increasing as the weather continued to abuse the invaders, further diverting Panther tanks for anti-partisan duties, armor reconnaissance, supporting infantry in their defense, and protecting artillery. Essentially, all of these jobs were jobs that the designers had not envisioned as a Panther role. Doctrinal hang-ups aside, piecemealing the Panthers in onesies and twosies was not the best use of these armored fighting vehicles. Oberleutnant Clem, commander of 6th Company, Panzer Regiment 23, discussed the distaste for the unit's current predicament. Quote, 
Every day, without a break, they were sent into action and made long marches every night. The same as in the beginning. The vulnerabilities of the panther appeared in spite of good training of the maintenance personnel. 50% of the panthers had already broken down at the first assembly area, two-thirds with motor damage, and one-third with broken final drives or hydraulic turret drives. This ratio applied to almost all of the breakdowns. As a result of continuous action, no time remained for the troops to care for their vehicles. End quote. This jives with my outlook of the Panther and how it was deployed. Even with adequate training and experience, the Panther was still quite finicky or fragile and would require these experienced troops an allotment of time just to upkeep the Panthers. Time, of course, which was not given or wasn't even available, which is a, I would call it a shortcoming. And I'm sorry, but even if you've designed an amazing vehicle that can kill everything in sight, if the fucking thing can't get to the enemy to do all this alleged killing, then what good is it? If your logistic network cannot support the vehicles, then these vehicles become mighty heavy paperweights and really cool museum pieces. Obviously, the, the plan was not to become overwhelmed and unable to maintain the front lines, though I would still argue that after 1942, the German high command ought to have been keenly aware of this inevitability. The Red Army was coming back with a vengeance, baby. Instead, we bore witness to the realities of the failures carried out in 1943 by the Nazi invaders. Further exasperating concerns for Panzer Regiment 23 were the lack of recovery vehicles. The Panzer Regiment only had four of the SDKFZ-9 FAMO vehicles available, for recovery, so instead, they relied on using repaired Panthers as towing vehicles, a process which, as avid listeners of the podcast will already know, is not good. Using Panthers to recover fallen Panthers resulted in the obvious outcome, like this excerpt from Panzertruppen, Volume 2, quote, Most of the Panthers that had been used for towing were very heavily damaged. Failure of the motor, final drives, drive shaft, and hydraulic pump, end quote. Short, succinct, and accurate. The Panther was not made for towing. It was verboten in the Panther Feeble, and was expressly forbidden, or verboten, in many of the Panther units as sort of a rule or guideline. But again, during times of crisis, anything is better than nothing, right? I mean, what's the worst that could happen? It's not like the Panther pulling a stuck Panther out of the mud could get stuck itself, thus reducing combat effect. Okay, thankfully for us, it's not our circus and it's not our monkeys. Suffice it to say, the Abteilung was in desperate need of FAMO recovery vehicles, and of course, these recovery vehicles were just not available. In March of 1944, around the time that our narrative leaves off from Panzer Regiment 23, we can step into the narrative of the 1st Abteilung, Panzer Regiment 1, and her six days of continuous engagement. According to Heinz Guderian, in the publication Notizen für Panzertruppen, literally Notes for the Panzer Troops, was a publication put forth for the troops during the war. Articles and stories abound, which, yes, leaned heavily into the propaganda, but also acted as a sort of 
Tales of Success and How-To Parables, which included things like tactics employed by the enemy, things to look out for, how to fix this, how to fix that, etc. Almost like a popular mechanics magazine, but for Nazis. Uh, Anyway, so Guderian has these notes about this particular panzer regiment, and specifically there was a group of 30 Panther Aus A's who were engaged in hard fighting against the Soviets in March of 1944. Quote, A very great deal can be done with a well-trained crew, careful maintenance, and tactically correct employment. During these six days, the battalion destroyed 89 tanks and assault guns and 150 artillery pieces. In spite of massed enemy defenses, there were only six total write-offs due to enemy fire. The following lessons were learned from these operations. End quote. So yes, the 89 destroyed tanks, 150 artillery pieces. I know, I know. I'm a broken record. Take those numbers with a grain of salt. I should, I should make a t-shirt. But anyway, the next bit is quite interesting. Quote, The great range of the gun must be exploited under all circumstances. Almost all of the targets destroyed were engaged at ranges from 1,500 to 2,000 meters. Every fourth or fifth round was a hit, even with high explosive rounds. Guderian goes on, The hitherto accepted attack formations with their normal distances and intervals should not be employed with panthers. Intervals and distances for these formations must be at least doubled. At the same time, there must be closer teamwork. End quote. Okay, everything Guderian is writing here, it makes total sense. Exploit the range of the weapon, since it is the most reliable and high-functioning piece of the panther, especially with the new Aus A turret, the panther can maintain a very high firing rate without the crew becoming incapacitated due to the fumes or other issues found within the early Panther D. Remember, too, that the turret itself can now turn faster than the Panther D, allowing quicker target recognition and slewing rates. The last bit of this section describes how, at the Abteilung level, increasing intervals and distances, as well as doubling down with the teamwork, is exactly what the previous Abteilungen we have discussed were missing. Abteilung level or battalion level training. According to Guderian in this article, operating on a tactical scale like this required the synergy of a well trained unit, not just a well trained tank. It needed to be the whole unit working together. Further extrapolating on the pros and cons of the Panther when employed correctly, Guderian languishes in the Panther's lacking flank defense. Quote Exposing the Panther to enemy fire at close range must be avoided at all cost. To this end, battlefield reconnaissance must be pushed forward. One useful method was to send one panther troop about a thousand to two thousand meters ahead in order to draw enemy fire, thus giving the main body a chance to open up at their effective range. Flank protection is vitally necessary for the panther, which is quite vulnerable from the sides. The unit commander must always have a reserve of panthers on which he can call for immediate neutralization of any flank threat. Pulling back elements from the leading tanks is always too late for a task of this kind. Normally, the reserve moves forward some 1,000 meters to the rear of the main body. End quote. 
This inferior flank protection was a known flaw in the Panther, and when we get to it, it will be discussed in more detail with regards to the Panther II, which was an unrealized Ausführung, or progression rather. Unfortunately for the Third Reich, and fortunate for everyone else, the Panther's weak side armor was never quite improved upon. Remember, the sides were only 40mm thick, and by themselves susceptible to 14.5mm anti-tank rifles, which were found in abundance on the Eastern Front. To help combat this, the Panthers were all issued the Schürzen, or side skirts, of mild steel, which helped defeat these rounds by deforming them and causing their impacts to become more or less negligible. Even the common 45mm anti-tank gun, the 53K Soviet pack gun, was capable of damaging the Panther from the side, but once again, the Schertzen proved somewhat able to defeat these rounds. Guderian also does a good job of pointing out how to get around, so to speak, this inferiority of the Panther, by using the proper tactics to mitigate exposing the flanks of the Panthers, and by being flexible enough to keep a reserve unit ready in which to counter any flanking maneuver by the enemy, which... Depending on the scenario, reserve Panther units were not always going to be available, especially when the front lines were being held together by a shoestring budget of men and materiel. One of the commanders within the Abteilung had found success employing the lighter and more maneuverable Panzer IVs to cover the flanks of the advancing Panthers, keeping up with the Panthers better than any infantry could, and to provide yet another layer of protection. The Panther's ability to reach out and touch the enemy at such great distances was a boon to be exploited. Keeping the Panthers safe on the sides from infantry-borne AT weapons and pack guns was paramount. The troops noted that having Panzer Grenadiers and self-propelled guns on their flanks was an excellent deterrent of the enemy, and it greatly improved the morale and the elan of the Panther units. Finally, Guderian concludes the report with another tidbit about overall engine performance of the new Panther tank. Quote, In spite of improved engine performance, the Abteilung traveled an average of 700 kilometers per Panther, with only 11 engines being replaced. For marches of more than 100 kilometers, the Panthers should be transported by rail because the track is considerably strained, especially in winter. End quote. Back on my same bullshit, 700 kilometers or 435 miles is a marked improvement from the early Aus D models, but is still not great, especially if 100 kilometers or 62 miles is the upper limit of what is traversable by the Panther before you expect things to just start falling apart. Well, this is, this is not good. Remembering that the railroad network in occupied USSR was not always up to speed, this could become a monumental undertaking, just trying to reposition armored units from one sector to another. Finally, Guderian's report comes to a close by reiterating, quote, A number of essential principles for the successful employment of Panther formations, particularly the following. Number one, extended formations in attack. Normal intervals should be doubled. Number two, Panthers can stop the enemy from getting too close in. Their strength is long-range fighting, hence battle reconnaissance should be pushed forward early. Number three, flank protection for Panthers should be established by other tanks and Panzergrenadiers. 
Number four, contrary to the established practice, Panther Amtailungen should be employed as a body. Consolidated formation was the reason for this particular unit's special success. Number five, concentrating fire on important targets is the principle laid down in the new gunnery manual for the Panther. Number six, rail transport should be used at every opportunity in view of the present short lifespan of the tank engine. End quote. Like I stated earlier, the magazine was really meant for the troops, and obviously, much like a children's book, it laid bare, like a parable of good versus bad, the practices that would reinforce principles they ought to have been taught and to break any bad habits by exposing their weaknesses and fallacies. For all the bells and whistles on the Panther, the Panzer Truppen and their commanders were not quite utilizing them in the way that would maximize their full potential, or so the high command believed. It is one thing to have the tools, but it is altogether another thing to be able to use them well. And it is in another realm altogether to make sure the tools themselves, when they left the factory, were in good working order. But hey, that's showbiz, baby. All right, I'd like to switch gears. Well, maybe not gears, as those can be fragile. But let's move our front from the icy steppe of the Soviet Union to the less icy, but still kind of miserable and cold hills of central Italy. Take a moment and let Oberstleutnant Rohrbeck set the scene as he arrived at the landing site near Anzio on February 27th of 1944. Quote, North of Aprila, the enemy have positioned Sherman tanks under cover of the railway embankment in mutually protective flanking positions. The terrain south of Aprila is not suitable for panzers. The long approach march along mountain roads and then the employment of panzers in deep mud have resulted in especially high equipment losses through breakdowns. The panzers are scattered around the rear area with track, steering brakes, and transmission problems. They are blocking the roads because towing equipment is not available. A panzer is hardly ever seen on the front lines. And when this does occur, it is only a short time before the panzers are shot up. As an example, out of only five panthers that made it into action in the sector on February 17th, within three hours, four of the panthers were shot up or broke down. End quote. Even with the change of scenery, the panthers can't catch a break. We continue to see the same issues again and again. I believe it's called a pattern. Italy, much like Russia, and really, like every other theater in the war that wasn't just a flat expanse, had its own terrain obstacles that the Germans, I suppose, didn't know existed at best, and at worst, just didn't account for? Quote, The difficulty of the terrain, soft ground, cratered fields, steep ravines cutting across the path of advance, forces the Panthers to remain on the hard-surfaced roads, this channels every movement and results in high equipment losses when attempting to engage the enemy in his superior position. End quote. The mighty and vaunted Panzerwaffe was currently being defeated by Czech's notes, soft ground. Taking a step backward so we can get the whole picture of Panzer Regiment 4, this particular unit, which had been originally stationed in France had been renamed from the 3rd Abteilung Panzer Regiment 4 to the 1st Abteilung Panzer Regiment 4, and was converted to a Panther Regiment in late 1943. 
the regiment was receiving early model Panther A's to train and refit for the remaining few months of 1943 and well into 1944. However, the enemy always gets a vote, and this training would be cut short like so much of the Panther training before it, because on January 22nd, 1944, the Allied invasion of mainland Italy had commenced. The Anzio Natuno beachhead was established. This was now threatening the German front in Italy, to which the German auto response was to counterattack as soon as possible and rush troops in to stop the bleeding. Enter our, not heroes, um, let's just say, enter our Panzer Regiment, who, after receiving the last of the new Panthers on January 17th, loaded up their now 70 Panthers onto 15 trains and started the trek towards Italy via Stuttgart, Munich, Verona, and finally, due to some bridges having been destroyed, unloaded and Ficule, about 130 kilometers or 80 miles from their actual destination. After unloading the Panthers on January 30th, they began the overland road march along poor quality, windy mountain roads towards Rome and eventually Torre Nuova. I'm so sorry, but my Italian is probably going to be wretched as well, even though I did take some classes in high school, but that was in 2001. This would now be the staging area for the Panthers held in reserve prior to the counteroffensive. Noting several mechanical breakdowns along the way, all of the Panzer Regiment 4 Panthers would finally arrive by February 9th to rest before the offensive, which was now set to take place on February 16th. Early in the morning, while the sun was still chasing away the moon, the air was still crisp, the first wave of infantry units commenced their attack along the Albano Road, which led directly into Anzio, where the Allies were still being held up. Quite a precarious situation, as the beachhead had been established, but it was still quite vulnerable and possibly in danger of being thrown back into the sea. The plan of attack was simple. German infantry units from the 715th Infantry Division, the 114th Jäger Division, or Mountain Division, and the 3rd Panzergrenadier Division would assault the main road, breaking through the first line of Allied defenses and, hopefully, reach the northern woods of Bosco di Padglione, about 10 kilometers or 6 miles from the Anzio beachhead, well within striking range for artillery. This move was to be followed up by the second wave consisting of the 26th Panzer Division, the 29th Panzergrenadier Division, the attachment of the supporting armored group, which would include our Panzer Regiment 4, as well as Panzer Abteilung 508 with her Tigers, and Panzer Abteilung 301 with her Stug 3 assault guns. There was also an accompaniment of Panzer Jaeger Abteilung 525 with an assortment of Hornus and Nashhorn vehicles. These units would wait for the signal from the first wave to commence their assault up the main road and straight into Anzio, pushing the Allies back into the sea, or forcing their surrender. Unfortunately for the attacking German forces, as will be commonplace for the Western theater, Allied air superiority and massive artillery bombardments struck hard and struck fast. The German after-action reports estimate the Allies rained down something like 60 to 70,000 artillery rounds on the first day of action alone, causing heavy casualties to the infantry without much ground gained at all. We are finally catching up to our frontline visitor, Oberstleutnant Rohrbeck, 
and his observations of Panzer Regiment 4. By the second day, February 17th, the Panthers were committed to battle as the attack was beginning to stall out. Again, the second day. Due to the heavy rain that had soaked the grounds the days prior to the assault, the Panthers found this movement to be costly in terms of breakdowns and mechanical losses. By the time the few Panthers who were still operational made it to the front line, it was too little too late, as the only route of attack for the heavy behemoths was on the road. They were quickly dispatched by superior allied positions and a concentration of firepower. As mentioned before, of the five Panthers that made it, after a few hours, only one Panther remained. The battle continued on through the night, and by the third day, February 18th, the Germans had not made any progress towards the woods, nor were they any closer to pushing the Allies out of Anzio. The roads, now littered with craters and burnt-out vehicles and equipment, were of little use to the massive 45-ton Panthers, which only further exasperated the mobility issues facing the tanks. Any Panther attempting to circumvent this road quickly found themselves bogged down in the mud, and with such awful conditions, any hope of recovery was basically out of the question. The enemy would have to first be defeated or pushed back before any of the I-Truppe could get to the immobilized Panthers and recover them. Further complicating matters was the intense pressure of the Allied air superiority. We are not in Russia anymore, and the Luftwaffe was outmatched, outplaned, outgunned, and out-everythinged by the Allies at this point in the war. Hauptmann Schult of 2nd Company had this to say, quote, All roads in the area were badly shot up and congested by all kinds of destroyed vehicles and equipment. Wherever a panther appeared, he was immediately subjected to a rain of artillery shells and aerial assault until he was knocked out or got hopelessly stuck in the churned-up ground. End quote. Mind you, this was still only day three of this offensive, and already the new Panthers were being baptized quite similarly to how the Panther Ds were at Kursk in July of 1943. Poor deployment and poor terrain leads to poor results. Anyone else got a sense of deja vu? This, uh, this action forced Panzer Regiment 4 to withdraw what remaining Panthers were still serviceable to reorganize for another assault on the bridgehead. At this point in time, it is hard to gauge exactly just how many Panthers were operational, since everything was so hectic we have conflicting reports. Remember, at the end of the day, a report was to be made in regards to how many Panthers were available and how many were operational. With this in mind, of the 70 Panthers which started the battle, we know several had become written off completely, with a large number being disabled, but not destroyed. A fair estimate would be about 60 available Panthers and 40 or so operational, though again, a concrete number is hard to pin down. Following a 10-day recuperation, another all-out assault was to be recommenced against the Allied beachhead on February 29th. Following a very similar pattern to the February 16th assault, infantry units would push forward to theoretically open up a gap and allow the specialized panzer units to break through and exploit the enemy's rear, hoping to break the beachhead up and force them to capitulate. Like the low-budget sequel to your favorite action movie, this exercise in futility came up quite short and bombed, literally. Suffering another wave of heavy losses, the German high command decided to call off the attack on the following day, 
March 1st of 1944. The final count for Panzer Regiment 4 was 67 available Panthers, which included those whom had returned from K-Works and I-Group repair facilities, of which only 30 were operational. Most of the Panther losses were attributed to mechanical breakdowns, terrain obstacles, and concentrated artillery fire, resulting in a 40% ready status of the regiment's Panthers. Panzer Regiment 4 would spend the next month and a half in the Pine Woods area of Pratica di Mare as reserve Panzer units to maintain the badly beat-up Panthers. While there, the unit would train relentlessly and try to get their replacement troops up to speed. By May 1st, the Abteilung would be nearing its original strength of 70 Panthers, of which 64 were operational. Though this respite was much needed, it would be cut short by the Allies on May 11th when the Anzio breakout and offensive began. Alerted on May 12th, the Abteilung was quickly marched to the area of Ciprano, with 26th Panzer Division arriving on May 15th. The unit, however, would not see action again until May 19th near the town of Pico, about 125 kilometers or 75 miles east of Anzio, to support the defenses there alongside Panzer Grenadiers from the 90th Panzer Grenadier Division. Fighting was fierce. The Allies, continuing their tour of Italy by land, air, and sea, pushed the Axis defenders back towards Melfa and Rokasaka. On May 23rd through the 24th, as the fighting in this area raged, the Panthers did give a good account of themselves and sold their lives dearly, claiming 33 enemy tanks for the loss of only six Panthers. 4th Company's commander, Hauptmann Eck, was awarded the Ritterkreuz, or Knight's Cross, for this particular action. 4th Company being the unit that absorbed those six Panther losses, as well as inflicting most of those heavy losses on the Allies. Following this engagement, on May 25th, the Abteilung was forced to retreat with the rest of the 26th Panzer Division, some 130 kilometers, or 80 miles, back to a small town near Rome itself, known as Tavoli. The Panther Abteilung was now being used solely as a rear guard, holding key choke points to allow the withdrawal to take place without becoming a full-on rout. Combat losses during this maneuver were quite high, coupled with the 30 Panthers having to be abandoned due to mechanical failures and a lack of fuel. These, much like the retreat from Kursk, would now become unrecoverable as they fell into enemy hands, many of which were not fully disabled by their crews as they had to escape quickly, allowing the Allies an ample supply of Panthers to assess and dismantle. Finally, in June, Panzer Regiment 4 was taken off of the front line a further 150 kilometers or 93 miles north of Rome to the town of Spoleto. Final tally for the Abteilung on June 14th was 17 available Panthers, 11 of which were operational, a mere shadow of the pre-Anzio 70 Panther Alps A's that the unit had. And this is where we will leave the unit, as well as the Panther A. This particular unit, Panzer Regiment 4, would receive the newly produced Panther Alps G tanks to replace the losses, though never amounting to more than 30 operational Panthers through to the end of the war in 1945. As we wind down today's episode, I want to go over a few aspects that make the Panther Ausführung A 
Well, an Osterhung A. What are the big takeaways in identifying marks? Well, if we wanted to boil the Panther Osterhung A down in the simplest of terms, which I do want to do, the Panther A was a Panther D with a new turret. Plain and simple. Want more nuance? Restart the episode. But really, the Panther A was a step in the right direction for improvements to the Panther as a whole, though mechanically not much would change throughout the entire production, but plenty of improvements to the hull, turret, and crew compartment would be made. Some minor mechanical improvements would occur, however the internals would generally remain the weak point throughout the life of the Panther in all of its variants. So next episode we will drill down on the Panther Alpha G, which I've decided will also be its own separate episode. We'll dive into the specifics of what makes the Alpha G an Alpha G and go into some of its own combat history. Obviously, like the Panther D and the Panther A, which would continue to see service throughout the end of the war, fighting was going on all over the place. And a Panther Tylong would have a mix of Panthers because again, the Osferung was only for engineering purposes. The K-Stand still just listed them as the SDKFZ-171, or simply as a Panther. So much like today's episode, I will go into some combat after-action reports that include mostly Panther Alphs Gs. Remember, these detailed reports are just a small slice of the overall pie and are used to support our narrative and to tell the story. As always, I can be reached via email at thepanzerpodcast at gmail.com, on Twitter at thepanzerpod, and on Instagram at thepanzerpodcast. I've been fairly active on Instagram, so if you're looking for pictures and whatnot, check it out. If you are enjoying the podcast, please drop us a review wherever you can, as I really appreciate it, and it helps us reach new audience members. Until next time, I'm John Burgess. Thanks for listening. Mir geht's gut, ich bin froh und ich sag dir auch wieso, weil du mich gut verstehst und mit Rat und mit Tat als mein guter Kamerad mit mir. Du